Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. It's been another turbulent week in the Partygate scandal, but Boris Johnson insisted he would not censor or impede the investigation into lockdown-busting parties in his own back garden. Absolutely not, but uh, you'll just have to, I'm afraid, you've got to let the, the independent uh, inquiries go on. When, and, when and do that, you think it'll be public? I, I, I wish I, I can't really say any more uh, than what I said yesterday about that. I'm, I'm really Will you publish it in full? Of course. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. In this week's episode, we'll be returning to the long-awaited and the long-delayed investigation into those rule-breaking parties and examine why hasn't the inquiry come out yet, and why have the Met Police decided to intervene just as it was about to be published, and when could we expect publication? Political editor George Parker and chief political commentator Robert Shrimsley will explore... And later, we'll be looking at the UK's active role in the worsening situation between Ukraine and Russia. What role is the Johnson government taking in assisting Ukrainian forces? And is it getting ahead of the rest of Europe? And what does it tell us about the state of British foreign policy after Brexit? Political and diplomatic correspondent Laura Hughes will analyse with our chief foreign affairs commentator Gideon Rackman. Now, George and Robert, we are sitting in a studio, the three of us. I could not tell you the last time we did this. It feels like something from another age and sort of speaks to how normal the COVID situation is. The fact that we're not talking about COVID is, uh, is, is an incredible thing in itself, isn't it? It's great. Although the city of London is still somewhat bare at the moment, as is the FT's office. <laughs> this is so normal that I think we'll all go out and have a bring-your-own-booze party as soon as we finish. <laughs> I actually just went to the kitchenette in the FT and I saw a, a, a bottle of red wine that's been probably sitting there for about two and a half years from the days of when glass of wine at the desk were maybe yes, we're, allowed. We're laying down the 2019s. <laughs> <laughs> it certainly wouldn't have happened in number 10. <laughs> Absolutely not. Well, let's get on to what did happen in number 10. So the Partygate scandal was due to come to a head this week. And Sue Gray, the senior Whitehall official investigating a series of lockdown-breaking events, has concluded her inquiries. The report is done, but it's yet to be published. Why? The answer is the Met Police, who on Tuesday, after months of saying they would not investigate the parties, decided they would, and they started a criminal inquiry into eight of the events, throwing Sue Gray's whole investigation into disarray. Sakir Starmer, leader of the opposition, said the police investigation was damaging to Johnson himself. We now have the shameful spectacle of a Prime Minister of the United Kingdom being subject to a police investigation. Unable to leave the country incapable of doing the right thing and every day his cabinet failed to speak out they become more and more complicit well george i think you're responsible for the great slogan of grey vu which is exactly where we've been every single day this week that we in the podcast we thought next week it's definitely going to happen and it didn't and earlier in the week it felt as if it was coming to a head but on tuesday Cresta Dick made this extraordinary announcement in a London Assembly meeting of an inquiry. Why do you think it came at that moment? Well, the Metropolitan Police's involvement in this whole affair has been quite extraordinary, I think. In the first instance, they came up with this ludicrous line that they didn't investigate 
events retrospectively as if they only investigated things that were likely to happen in the future. Then they said there wasn't any evidence to get involved. And then the moment that Sue Gray was about to produce the evidence that we've all been waiting for and to see her report, they suddenly decided that they would get involved. And then they said the evidence had to be buried in the meantime while they conducted their own criminal inquiry, which of course could take weeks or even months. And if you were a deep state conspiracist, you might think that this is rather convenient for Boris Johnson that the Metropolitan Police Commissioner, with whom he has a very good relationship, has intervened like this at the very last moment. The politics of it, of course, mean that this sort of big climactic moment, the crescendo of this whole affair, which we'd expected this week, has now dissipated. And, you know, we don't quite know when this will come to a head again. Well, Robert, are you a deep state conspiracist? And do you think there's something array about, array about the timing of Cresta Dick's announcement? Or do you think it was internal pressure she was facing from the Met and from her colleagues to investigate this scandal which has been at the forefront of politics for close to two months now. Now, I'm a deep cock-up theorist. and It's my general approach to the world. I think the police were just beginning to look more and more ridiculous. She had to give evidence in public. And it's clear that you know the, the detailed allegations that Sue Gray had been studying and the information she'd got was incontrovertible. It was very interesting to look at the words that Cressida Dick used when she explained why they were now going to look at these historic allegations. And two of them in particular struck me. The first was she said that the police have a duty to go back in when failure to do so would undermine the general support for the rule of law. I don't know why she couldn't have figured that part out earlier, but nonetheless. The second point, however, she said is that they, they go back in when there is clear evidence of a breach and no evidence of any kind of viable defence for that breach. So what that says is the information contained in Sugre's report is absolutely clear-cut and the police would have looked absurd if they didn't look at it. In fairness, the one concession I will give the police on this is they have said for quite a long time that if the report cover brought up clear evidence, they would act on it. So it's not completely surprising. The only thing that's surprising is the ineptitude of the police in waiting quite this long to step up to the plate. So as of Friday morning, George, when we're recording this, essentially Sue Gray's mulling over three options. And by the time listeners hear this, she may have alighted on which one she's going to do. The first is to publish a stripped down version of the report, which is what the Met Police have urged. And they told the FT this week that was what they felt should go ahead. The second option is to ignore the Met and publish essentially what was going to come out anyway and hope that she has good legal advice that means she's not going to undermine the Met's investigation. Or third, the whole thing gets delayed until the future and we have to wait until the Met finishes, which could be weeks or months, and then it's published. Where do you think it's going to end up? And all of them actually, well, apart from the second option, which seems quite unlikely if the Met have said this, are probably quite good for Boris Johnson. I think they are. I mean, I think the the maximum moment of danger for Boris Johnson, frankly, was this week because we got to the point where all of the rebel MPs had decided they would wait for this trigger moment. Let's assume that Sue Gray's report came out somewhere in the middle of what we expected. This would be the moment where they would have to decide, are they going to trigger this vote of no confidence? Are they going to get 54 letters in or not? Now, the fact that it appears that either Sue Gray, and as you say, we're recording this Friday morning, either Sue Gray produces half a report, which doesn't contain the most serious allegations, or the whole thing is pushed back by weeks or even months until the police investigation is concluded. That removes that moment of, crisis for Boris Johnson. And it gives him time. And time is quite a useful element in all politics always, isn't it? Because it allows public anger over this to subside. And who knows whether the public will be quite as angry about this when the police finally conclude their investigation. It also crucially gives him time to win over MPs, to make a load of promises. And basically, he's been having meetings with Tory MPs all this week, 
making him all kinds of promises, all intended to do one thing, which is to secure him in number 10. Well, to get a sense of that anger, let's hear this exchange, what happened at PMQs on Wednesday after the announcement of that Met inquiry and the whole thing thrown up in the air. I would prefer to be led by a lawyer than a liar. Will he now resign? That was Lord Russell Moyle, the Labour MP, Robert, who um, managed to get away with saying liar in the House of Commons, which is quite a, a rare thing, but he was saying his constituents felt that he personally was not calling the Prime Minister a lie. But it does feel like the political temperature has calmed down because this was all coming to a point and we felt this could be the week Johnson faces a confidence vote, all the gory details of these parties in the Grey report. And that obviously does help Johnson at the moment. And it feels like the, the pressure has subsided and that Downing Street feels they're on safer ground. I think we always have to be careful because we all, I mean, all of us are too tempted to live in the immediate and things do come back. But I think there have been several things that have gone right for Boris Johnson this week, apart from the ones we've already mentioned. For a start, he's finally got his defence strategy in order. He's got the right people around him. They're putting out the lines. They seem coordinated. They are, you know, going after the rebel MPs and trying to pick them off one by one. They're getting their defence lines together. He's beginning to think about the kind of things he can say to buy off MPs. So, you know, the old leadership campaign is back and motoring. That's helped him quite a lot for a start. Secondly, the delay is helpful. And I mean, Boris Johnson's whole career has been built on temporising on problems, just pushing them away. And essentially, his strategy has always been, you know, that he can tough out a problem longer than you can stay angry about it. And so again, that also works for him. The only question mark I raise about this is that these things will come back. The police inquiry is coming back at some point. The Grey Report at some point will be published, maybe closer to the May elections, which has often been cited as the point when MPs might want to act. I think he'd already more or less seen off the immediate moment of crisis. I think it was going to come back a bit later on. So although, you know, I would be more optimistic if I were him now, I absolutely don't think this is over. And one other technical point which has to come up is one part of his defence strategy was a clear out of the people in number 10 probably the sacking of the chief whip, almost number one condition for him from his MPs, get your operation together. Well, if we're all waiting on this inquiry, if he has said natural justice demands you don't judge me until this is complete, is he able to carry out that clear out before those inquiries are over? I mean, politically he can. Whether it's as good a strategy when people are still waiting to be judged, I'm not so sure. Well, I think fundamentally, downing in an investigation by the police is never a good thing, George, fundamentally. But there has been something of a fight back from Johnson this week. And first of all, we've written about his shadow whipping team, which, as Robert said, the chief whip is in a very fragile position. I think we're very surprised if he'll be in his job by this time next month. But this sort of old guard of Johnson loyalists have gathered round, have spent this week trying to get round MPs, shore them up, reassure them. And there's been two kind of key messages they've been putting forward. One is he's not going anywhere. He's going to fight. Don't think if you can be an opportunistic person just to jump on him, that's not going to happen. And second of all, he is serious about change. And when he's listening to you about what kind of change he needs to his government, to his policy, to the way Downing Street is run. And it feels as if that is actually working. Yeah, I think so. And the, the, Robert mentioned the fightback strategy. There are a couple of other elements to this strategy. The first one was to try and trivialise the allegations that are being made against him and all this stuff. That there is still a bit of that in the ether, about. by the way. Yeah, so this idea that it was all about a birthday cake and he was ambushed by a cake and Daily Mail headliners, have people lost all sense of proportion? That idea that this is all rather overblown. And the second argument, which Jacob Rees-Mogg's been advancing, is the idea if you get rid of a leader, you'll immediately trigger a general election, which will lead to a disaster for the Tory party. I don't think anyone really takes that very seriously. 
he has been advancing the idea. He's he's in listening mode and he's prepared to change. And he's got a few cards in his hands, which we'll see him playing, I think, in the next week or two. We're going to see this almost fabled now leveling <laughs> up white paper. Sounds like it's going to come out next week. Uh, we're going to see them try to make a thing about the opportunities afforded by Brexit for deregulation. And most crucially of all, a big economic package to alleviate the cost of living crisis, including, as it is becoming increasingly likely, a uh, suggestion that we're going to see the national insurance rise schedule for April being put on hold. So he's got a few cards. And when you're prime minister, you know, you do have cards to play. And as a lot of, lot of the rebels themselves admit, it's actually very difficult to organise to get rid of an incumbent prime minister. And so the main thing, Robert, I think we're looking at in terms of policy is going to be this national insurance rise. When that case was made in the autumn, it was really there is no alternative to this. Otherwise, the health service won't be able to cope. But it's become quite infamous among Tory MPs who don't like the idea of just piling money into the NHS, making the state bigger without any kind of clear base on where it's going to be spent. Jacob Rees-Mogg, we know, has spoken out in Cabinet against this. What's your sense of whether Tory MPs are shifting and fundamentally, is the rest of the Cabinet shifting? It's very clear. We've seen updated borrowing figures which show that Rishi Sunak has the money to pay for the next year's you know, NHS backlog funding and social care funding without having to levy this tax. He's, he's got more than 12 billion, which is what it will raise. So he can afford not to do it. And Tories have always hated this tax. I mean, even he hate, I mean, in the, in the budget where he announced it, he, he kept going on about how much he hated it. So they all hate the idea of this. So there's no question they would like to get rid of it if they could. It does go to a fundamental debate and a, and a division within the Conservative leadership about how you approach your spending commitments. Rishi Sunak believes they have to be permanently funded. Others like Boris Johnson and Liz Truss are quite happy, you know, to live off borrowing a little bit, work out how you fund it later on. I think also for Rishi Sunak, it's about holding Boris Johnson in check and saying, well, what, if you want to do this, how are you going to pay for it? So, I think he's going to find it very hard to resist. I think there's an absolute appetite to, at the very least, delay this rise for a year. And given the cost of living concerns, it's obvious that he can afford to do so. I think Sunak is going to find this quite hard to do. And I think he's in quite a difficult position over the last few weeks in this crisis anyway. Well, this is the last thing, George, is that obviously behind the scenes, leadership manoeuvring has started, that you've seen people are taking soundings, to use the Westminster jargon of having calls and saying, you know, well, if you were to run, well, I'd back you. And what about a dinner here or a glass of fizz here? Fizz with Liz Truss has obviously been doing the rounds here. But it does feel as if Rishi Sunak, you know, he's the one Johnson's inner circle worry about the most, because mm. if he was to turn against the PM, he probably would be the end of his leadership. And he's the nearest thing to an heir apparent within the Tory party at the moment. But I think, as Robert said, the way he's politically played this has not been very deft. Not at all. And it's a reminder, in a way, of how relatively inexperienced Rishi Sunak is. Worth bearing in mind that Rishi Sunak was only elected for the first time as an MP in 2015. And some of the way he's handled the last couple of weeks, as you say, have appeared a bit naive. You know, the fact he was down in Devon on the day that that Boris Johnson was facing a big problem in the House of Commons made it look like he wasn't really being very supportive, then being rather slow to issue a statement of support, letting it be known, or people around him letting it be known that the national insurance rise, he was describing that as the prime minister's tax. All of it sort of slightly clumsy and slightly cack-handed. And he finds himself in this really difficult position, as Robert's just alluding to, of being this person who talks about being the low-tax chancellor, who happens to be presiding over the highest tax burden in the country's history since 1950, and this national insurance thing is a big test for Rishi Sunak and his political deafness because the Treasury institutionally is determined to hang on to the national insurance rise. They say it's absolutely essential. 
borrowing costs are rising, the public finances are extremely fragile, you have to pay for permanent new spending commitments with permanent tax rises, and Rishi Sunak, who will be under pressure to cut that tax or at least postpone it for a year. So it's a big test for him. You can go to ground for a couple of days when a crisis breaks in, but this one's been rumbling on too long. And if you compare the way he's conducted himself with, say, Liz Truss, who's considered to be probably his major rival in an early leadership election, you know, she's been out there defending the problem, quite deftly not defending him over the actual specific allegations, but defending him in general. Rishi Sunak's been hiding down and Tory MPs will look at this and go, look, we actually want someone with a bit of fight in them. And he's not shown it. It's not been his finest hour. Well, finally, I want to ask you all, given all this, given where the Partygate scandal is, is it time to buy, sell or hold shares in Boris Johnson? George? As we sit in the studio on Friday morning, Seb, I would say buy shares in Boris Johnson. Robert? But be prepared to sell them quite soon. (laughs) (laughs) Um, I probably wouldn't buy them in Boris Johnson yet. This, This is probably not the absolute moment. I think you could hold for a bit. I think we'll be back discussing this again before too long, although I can't reveal the date because the Metropolitan Police have asked me to keep it under my hat. <laughs> and I'm going to agree with George and say, actually, given how low the ratings was, now's probably quite a good time to buy. George and Robert, thank you very much. If the party scandal wasn't dominating all minds in Westminster, the focus would be on the worsening situation in Ukraine. With the West braced for an invasion by Russia, the UK has taken a notably bold stance in supporting the forces with equipment and training. Whereas some European countries, particularly Germany, are concerned about poking the Russian bear, the UK doesn't seem to have such qualms. The Foreign Secretary, Liz Truss, explained how the government is going beyond other NATO members. We're bolstering NATO. So we've already got enhanced forward presence. We've already got troops in Estonia. NATO is looking at what more it can do. I was in Brussels on Monday talking to the Secretary General about the UK contribution to that. And we will also make sure that there are severe consequences in terms of sanctions on Russia if they were to stage an incursion. Well, Gideon Rackman, welcome back to the pod. It's great to have you with us. So for coming to this story afresh, just give us the latest on the situation in Ukraine and how likely you think a Russian invasion or incursion into its territory is? Well, you know, I can't claim any special knowledge, but it's certainly the case that if you talk to American and British officials, they will tell you that it's more likely than not. The scale of that incursion, we don't really know. So one person who's pretty well placed said to me that he thought that there was only like now a 20% chance that diplomacy would resolve this without violence. But there was only a 20% chance that a Russian invasion would be kind of full-scale tanks all the way to Kiev, basically overthrowing the Ukrainian government. He thought that it was, you know, 60% that there would be a noticeable violent incursion, that there would be clashes with the Ukrainian army, big casualties, but that it may be a way of consolidating the situation of the separatists in eastern Ukraine and giving Russia you know, making a statement, destabilising the Ukrainian government, but not a full-scale takeover of the country. Well, this is what Anthony Blinken, the US Secretary of State, said of the current situation. Our actions over the past week have sharpened the choice facing Russia now. We've laid out a diplomatic path. We've lined up steep consequences should Russia choose further aggression. We've stepped forward with more support for Ukraine's security and economy. And we and our allies and partners are united across the board. Now, we'll continue to press forward and prepare. It remains up to Russia to decide how to respond. 
we're ready either way. Well, Laura Hughes, it's a delight to have you on the podcast as always. So the UK is obviously one of NATO's key security partners, but why has it put itself really on the front line here? And what exactly is the Johnson government doing? This is actually a moment for the, the UK to show what global Britain means. And we've been very cynical about this, but actually when it comes to traditional security, I think the UK is being vocal in the way it is because it is one of the few spheres in which the UK is is still fairly strong and this isn't impacted by Brexit. European partners still actually take the UK seriously when it comes here. So the UK has the imperative and an opportunity to try and show that we still matter, basically, in in the global context. And we've seen that on a number of fronts. So Liz Truss took a really unusual step last weekend of declassifying MI6 intelligence, which claimed Russia is plotting to install a pro-Moscow leader in Kiev. And then you've got Johnson coming out and making really sort of quite forceful statements about a lightning war and and what a disastrous step that would be. So I think this is the UK trying to show what global Britain might mean. And also, if you speak to people close to Liz Truss, they want to avoid a situation that we had in Crimea, where it was felt that the UK was, was absent on the international stage. Because Gideon, obviously, there is a practical situation that obviously UK has values, it believes very strongly in NATO, and it wants to try and support that. But there is an interesting question here that the UK appears to have gone beyond other European partners here. What do you think is driving that? It's partly a reflection of long-standing differences in approaches to Russia. I mean, I think if you look at the Europeans, Britain has had a worse relationship with Russia than the other EU countries for some years. You can take it to the murder of Alexander Litvinenko, former Russian agent in London, and then a near repetition with the attempted murder of the Skripals in the UK in 2018. Those kind of plunged official relations between the UK and Russia into a a very bad state. The British at that point were asking the Europeans for support and got some to rally, rally around. Whereas France, Germany, the relations are, are just a bit different. Germany, I think now is, is actually something of an outlier in the Western alliance in its obvious hesitation in confronting Russia. They're not even supplying weapons to the Ukraine. They're very dependent on Russian gas. They have a different approach to Russia, which reflects geographical proximity, historical guilt, all sorts of things. But the Germans are just in a different place and have been for some time. And France has its own views, which are about sort of promoting European autonomy, not wanting to be too closely tied to America. And, and Macron has, was in fact trying unsuccessfully to promote a rapprochement with Russia a couple of years ago. You know, I'm not that surprised to find Britain where it is relative to the other European powers. And I don't think you actually need an explanation rooted in British domestic politics, although I'm sure the points that Laura makes about the, you know, the crisis in the Johnson government, the need to demonstrate Britain's kind of muscularity post-Brexit, they're all true as well. Because you saw this extraordinary scene, Laura, that there was a UK military plane going to Ukraine that had to actually take a long route flying around Germany because it included army and equipment there. And I think that really, Laura, sort of symbolises the Foreign Office trying to really push this. And you've seen, we heard Liz Truss earlier, we've also heard the Defence Secretary, Ben Wallace, making very bullish statements, very much in line, much more with the US than what European partners are saying. Yes, although interestingly, as we've reported in the FT this week, the UK is working with the EU 
on plans that were initially drawn up by the Americans to hit new Russian gas projects with sanctions if we see any further Russian incursion into Ukraine. And it does look as though actually the UK is working more with European allies and that the Europeans are doing a lot more. But as Gideon mentioned, countries like Germany are really dependent on Russia for their energy in a way that the UK is not. Boris Johnson made the point, I think we're only rely, you know, 3% of our energy comes directly from Russia. It's no real surprise we're following the Americans too, and that this is an example to try and show Washington that we are their number one ally here and that we can work together. And also remember what happened in Afghanistan last summer. Lots of commentators are drawing comparisons between the two because Many feel that Putin saw what happened in terms of the withdrawal from Kabul. They think that the West is disunited, disinterested in foreign affairs. And I think the Americans and the Brits are trying to show with this that there is unity here and that there is action willing to be taken in a way that we saw there just wasn't the appetite in Afghanistan. Now, of course, Gideon, we couldn't talk about UK foreign policy without mentioning the B word here, and that is Brexit. And of course, there is a counterfactual. Had the UK still been in the EU, do you think it would have taken this kind of more bullish response here? Or do you think, as you said, there are those wider factors, if you mentioned Skripal, Litvinenko, that have made the UK naturally more aggressive? Or do you think, again, this is this sort of muscular way of trying to show the UK's present on the world stage, trying to defend those democratic values that Liz Truss loves to speak about? Look, my guess is that it would have been pretty similar for the reasons that, that, that I mentioned. But I think there's no doubt that Britain is looking for opportunities to make a statement that the UK still matters. And also, you know, not just to the world, but maybe specifically to Eastern Europe, we found ourselves a bit kind of frozen out of the EU uh, or out of European politics because of EU unity over Brexit. So now you can make a point to Poland, to the Baltic states, to the Swedes and Finns, that, you know, on security stuff, maybe Britain really does still matter. But this is, um, you know, all being run really through NATO rather than through the EU. And, you know, Britain never withdrew from NATO and its closest security relationship is with the United States. One thing that does make me slightly worry is that this is such a serious crisis that to the extent that what should be irrelevant concerns creep in, like let's show that we're still really power to be reckoned with post-Brexit, or for the Biden administration, let's show that America's really got its hands around this after the debacle of, of Afghanistan. Those kinds of motivations, while understandable, could lead you to, to overplay it. Well, Laura, there is the suggestion that UK ministers might go to Moscow, that Defence Secretary Ben Wallace and Foreign Secretary Liz Truss may go to Moscow to try and broker some kind of further diplomatic compromise to this situation. What do you think Britain wants to get out of it? This is quite an interesting point because some commentators have suggested that this has all the echoes of, sort of the Cold War. And actually, this could play to the UK's natural strengths in terms of, of demonstrating we won't be intimidated by Russia, offering a, a lead by example to other NATO powers. But really specifically on this point, on the political front, helping to organise or at least contribute to the sort of detente leg of this old-fashioned Cold War situation in terms of helping to give Moscow a ladder to climb down. 
And even I think if there's the military action, the UK are going to try very hard to play a sort of brokering role here. And that's why Liz Truss, Foreign Secretary, is expected to go out to Moscow over the next few weeks. We don't know exactly when, but the Russians have accepted that invitation. We've obviously made some military contributions and expect more to be made, but it will be the diplomatic efforts that I think will be really worth watching next. I think, you know, speaking to some people in the diplomatic game, there's considerable nervousness on the British side that Liz Truss could be outmatched in Moscow. She'll be meeting Sergei Lavrov, one of the toughest, most experienced foreign ministers in the world, a bit of a thug who completely humiliated Josep Borrell, the uh, EU's foreign policy representative, when he went to Moscow not so long ago. Liz Truss is very inexperienced. So one of the people I was speaking to said, I just hope they know what they're doing and they had really prepared this. And I think, Laura, that is a justified thing. So obviously, Liz Truss is quite new to the job. And as we know, and we've talked about many times on the podcast, has leadership ambitions at the moment. And obviously, we'll see this as not just a serious international situation, but as a way of boosting her domestic and international standing. Completely. She's going to go out there and try to look like they're the next Iron Lady to talk a tough game, to play hardball. But as Gideon mentions, this is real world politics, this is going to be a huge test for her. And it'll be really interesting to see how seriously the Russians actually take her. It, it provides a massive opportunity for her. I expect her to post lots of pictures of her in Moscow on her Instagram account and play to the base and, and make herself look as though she's making a meaningful contribution to this crisis. It is an opportunity. But yeah, there is some cynicism out there about how much of an impact she really will be able to have. And just finally, I want to touch on one other British foreign policy matter that's dominated the news this week, and that is the evacuation of animals from Afghanistan. This was a controversy at the time in the summer when uh, it emerged that uh, Nowzat, which is a charity that looks after animals in war zones, had lobbied or allegedly lobbied the Prime Minister through his wife, Carrie Johnson, to get animals evacuated from Afghanistan, which some sort came at the cost of people being evacuated. Now, this is always been very firmly denied. But bit by bit, Laura, evidence has come out to suggest otherwise. This is the most extraordinary story because the Prime Minister has continually denied that he had any sort of involvement. And then this week, we have had a series of emails leaked in which officials high up in Zach Goldsmith's office, for example, who's a foreign minister, refer directly to the fact that the PM had, quote, authorised, close quote, the evacuation of staff and animals from this charity in Kabul. And the reason this is so controversial is that the UK government sponsored this chartered flight carrying the animals and the staff out of Kabul. So you had British troops on the ground physically negotiating for this flight to leave when others are arguing their full focus should have been on getting out the thousands of Afghans who helped the UK over our years that we were there and who have subsequently been left behind and potentially murdered by the Taliban. And I think this reflects the fact that there are civil servants working in the government at the moment who are so outraged with the fact that potentially the Prime Minister is not always being entirely truthful, that they are willing to leak emails of this nature. And the particular ones we saw this week came from a whistleblower who gave evidence in December of the chaotic handling of the situation by the Foreign Office. It, it's really damning for the Prime Minister. And I, I think questions are going to continue to be asked and more 
claims and evidence are going to be leaked. Well, this is what Johnson had to say about the claims and following that leaked testimony. This whole thing is 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 total rhubarb. Uh, I I was very proud of what uh, our armed services did uh, with op-pitting, and it was a, an amazing thing to to move fifteen thousand people out of of Kabul in, in the way that we did. Uh, I thought it was also additionally uh, very good that we were able to help uh, those vets uh, who who came out. Uh, as well. Well, just finally, Gideon, what do you make of this whole scandal? Obviously, total rhubarb is, I'm not sure where that ranks in the firm denials of things, but there is quite a lot of evidence that there was some intervention to get those animals taken out, which may have come at the cost of human lives. And it just looks very embarrassing for the Foreign Office. Absolutely. I mean, and I'd note that, you know, Boris Johnson has a record of coming up with really uh, kind of florid phrases to claim that things that are true are not true. Do you remember the inverted pyramid of Piffle, which turned out to be true? So I wouldn't take his denials, you know, seriously, frankly. And yeah, I think it's really embarrassing. I mean, of course, the Foreign Office would just have been following orders. I mean, the kind of strong suspicion is that this was a combination of a kind of animal-loving down-in-the-street uh, officials, maybe Boris Johnson's own wife, who's very big on animal kind of welfare, and a prime minister who may have sort of been easily swayed or seen a story that he thought would play well in the papers, but that ended up looking like sort of grotesquely trivial reaction to a, to what was a human tragedy unfolding in Afghanistan. Well, Laura and Gideon, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you'd like to hear more from Gideon, and I can thoroughly recommend the Rackman Review, his podcast on geopolitics and foreign affairs, which comes out every Thursday. But if you like this podcast, then you should subscribe to Payne's Politics. You can find us through all the usual channels to receive episodes every Saturday morning. We also like positive ratings and nice reviews. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Howie Shannon. The sound engineers are Breen Turner and Yang Sigsworth. Until next time, thank you for listening. Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80 percent less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up Quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. That's Quince.com slash upgrade.